This is Sergey and Vadim Rebson of The, the Mentors. Mentors, and this is a show where we tell stories about ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we have a really exciting guest. As a matter of fact, sort of the exact type of guest that we love to talk to and we love to learn the story about. Um, this gentleman is a serial entrepreneur that started multiple businesses before eventually starting big-ass fans which I think a lot of you guys have seen around. I remember first time I actually saw Big Ass Fans was in a Cancun airport. And I was looking up, sitting there waiting for hours for my flight. Uh, and I saw right in the middle, it said Big Ass Fans. And I just laughed to myself, told my girlfriend, wow, okay, this is pretty cool uh, that they invested in that uh, in the airport. Uh, and so Kerry Smith is on the show with us. He built that business and sold it in 2016 for $500 million. We're really excited to hear your story, Kerry. Thanks so much for coming here. Well, thank you guys for having me. The first thing that I want you to kind of tell us, in your own words, what do you think contributed most to your success, and what do you think makes a successful business person or entrepreneur? I think that um, what I used to tell my people was that um, that we have to make money to be in business, but we're not in business to make money. And I think that that's important from my perspective. I think that uh, if you're if you concentrate on the money, uh, I, I can't imagine how you can do it. You're concentrating on the wrong thing. What we've concentrated on as a company, and we started just a little bit of background. We started the company in 1999. Uh, I had six people um, that uh, started it with me, uh, and uh, when we started the company. We uh, refer to it as HVLS fan company, high volume, low speed fans. Uh, inevitably, though, when uh, people called us about the fans, and of course there's only six of us, so we all answer the phones, um, they would, uh, we would say HVLS fan company, and there would be a pause on the other end of the line. And they'd say, are you those guys that make those big ass fans? Well, uh, we weren't the sharpest knives in the drawer, but, but we figured out that maybe this had a little cachet. And uh, I think it was important that we listened because, again, I think one of the important things in business is finding your customers, finding the problems, find a solution, but listen to the customers. And that's uh, probably one of the first things we did in that situation. And uh, so that was about uh, 2002. And so during that time, since that time, that's been the name of the company. And it's quite interesting, really. Um, I meet people from all over the world. I can see people from all over the world um, that have heard about the fans. And we've sold, oh gosh, oh, hundreds of thousands of them. When we started the business, interestingly enough, uh, I was asked, well, how large do you think this market is? And I thought about it, and I said, you know, I, th I think we could uh, capture the entire market. The entire market would be 50,000 fans. And, um, and it took us a while to get to 50,000 fans. But, uh, but now, gosh almighty, I mean, uh, we sell hundreds of thousands of fans a year. Um, so, but anyway, I, I think that... A couple of things that, that I would suggest that people pay attention to if they're interested in, in not just starting a business, but, but, but having a successful business. And the first, as I say, is don't, don't get all wrapped up in thinking about money and how much money you're going to make. And that's, you, that's, 
that's something that happens. That's not, that's not, that shouldn't be your focus. The focus of the business uh, is to, always was with us, uh, was to make the absolute best product that we possibly could. And, and I know that sounds like, well, that's what everybody says. But we wanted to make absolutely positively sure that that wasn't just what we said. And we spent a lot of time and money um, going out into the field and talking to people on the telephone when after they purchased a fan. That we talked to everybody, everybody. And uh, the, the, normally what we said was, look, we're not, and I, and I wasn't, we're not interested in hearing all the nice things you have to say about us. Because, I mean, we work at this pretty hard. And so we know we do a lot of things right. But I'm not interested in that. What I want to know is what we did wrong. I mean, how could we do this better? And it takes a little digging sometimes. And, and it didn't matter if it was like, you know, well, okay, your guys were playing hacky sack out in the parking lot at, you know, at lunch and, and, you know, they shouldn't do that sort of thing or we didn't appreciate that. It could be just little tiny things like that. But we spent a lot of money based on what people told us. And the reason we could do that, and I think this is another important thing, is that we sold directly to our customers. And by that, I mean, we didn't sell to a big box store. We didn't sell through uh, a, a manufacturer's rep or a distributor or a dealer. We sold direct. And what that means, and you may not, it may not mean that much to you right off the bat, but what that means is you're talking to the person or the persons that are using your product. And that's, that's, invaluable information but for two reasons. One, you get straight feedback. And a lot of the product development that we did with the company was based on what these people told us. I mean, it's important. They're, they, they paid for the product. They're using the product. They want something different. You, by God, ought to listen to it. You know, two things stood out for me in your uh, initial advice, which is don't just chase money for the sake of money and focus on providing value. But most people, and I would say the majority of people that are listening to the show right now, uh, probably would never think about starting a company selling fans, big ass fans at that. And so I, I want to back up a little bit and figure out how you got there, um, uncover the story of how you found yourself actually selling fans and then turning that into a successful business. Uh, so in, in our pre-interview uh, we discussed how you had some sales jobs in even starting when you were a child, a sort of lemonade stand type of jobs, or you created those for yourself. You worked in reinsurance uh, for about five years after college, but you realized about yourself that you um, you don't really like working for other people, and that was just part of you. And I think self-awareness is really important for any young person. Uh, so you also mentioned don't chase money. So then what made you want to start a business, if not money? Well, I think the, the main reason I started a business was um, that I thought uh, I could do better than the uh, than people that were working, that I was working for. And, and I needed more freedom. And I, it's not as if I didn't try to, in working with the reinsurance company, that I didn't try to... Um, uh, to expand on what I was doing because I did I actually did a lot of work in uh, oil and gas and I, I got out in the field and 
Uh, I did a lot of things that weren't typical, but I was working against the grain and it, and it was difficult because it wasn't the way they normally went about business. So I recognized if I was going to be happy, uh, I had to be doing these things for myself. And I also did something that I, I didn't mention, but I think it's interesting. When, At least it shows um, or indicates maybe a mindset. When I was in high school, I got this idea naturally, just like I did with the reinsurance company later, that I could do this better than the people that were running the high school. I, I, I suppose everybody probably thinks that. And uh, But I was able to convince the uh, principal of my school, uh, the uh, district, um, um, gosh, I don't even know what they call them, Su- supervisor, okay. superintendent, yeah, uh, that I should uh, be able to run a a program for three days in April, uh, and take over the school. And, and so what I provided my, my deck, if you will, was that we would provide seven classes, uh, for a thousand students, uh, for three days. And first thing we did was we asked everybody, all the students, uh, what they were interested in and to write it down. And so people wrote things down. And then we asked, well, tell us what your mother does. Tell us what your father does. So we could see what they did and see if we got any matches. And then we were fortunate enough uh, to live uh, outside of Washington, D.C. So we had politicians up the wazoo and a lot of people that work with the government and a lot of uh, military. And we were able to put together uh, the number of offerings that we had to put together to have a thousand kids uh, have 21 classes. And, um, and that's what we did. They let us do it. I didn't, I actually did not go to school. Uh, I got just automatic grades in, in, uh, senior as a senior in high school, which is pathetic because I wasn't thinking about college at all. Um, and, um, but it was interesting and it taught me an awful lot. So anyway, I think that with that sort of experience or at least thinking that yes and it was successful um that that i could actually do something like that that i could if i had an idea i could prosecute that idea and i could make it happen um i was just as again i think a lot of us are when we're that age and i was 28 when i started the the first business it's good to do it when you're young because it's not i mean you've got a lot of energy and you just don't know what you don't know, and you're not afraid of anything. And that's that really is, I think, as an entrepreneur, that's one of the that makes life a lot easier. Makes your decision tree very, very more like a pole. So I don't know. It was just uh, I felt like uh, I was I would be better doing things alone uh, by myself. And, and and when I was a kid, we moved all the time. I went to like I don't know twelve different schools. It was ridiculous. My father moved all over the place. And, um, and so I only put that in there because I didn't, we were all, all of the, uh, my siblings as well, everybody was independent. I mean, you had to be independent because you didn't know anybody. Uh, and so I think that that, I think that all of those things coupled together were the reasons uh, that, I, that I went into business for myself. And so what was that first opportunity you recognized? Because you're working in this reinsurance company, you're not fulfilled because you don't get to do things your way. What's the aha moment that that said, okay, I'm going to quit my job and build my own business? Well, 
we, uh, at the time, we were living in Dallas, and it was incredibly hot. In Dallas that year, it was it got to 117 um, one day in summer. That's that's hot, and we were the talk at the time was energy bills, and so we were focused on that. And we had an idea that we had implemented when we were kids, uh, which was misting water, spraying water on a rooftop. And that was our great idea, and it, maybe it wasn't the best idea in the world. It surely didn't work out that way. It did work out that way. It wasn't the best idea in the world. But, but, um, but it was interesting because I learned how to uh, convince people that, that it was a good idea. And it did actually work. I mean, on, on, it, maybe it didn't work so well on houses, which is where we started, but it did work pretty well on very large... Uh, industrial plants, but you're talking about hundreds of thousands of square feet that are exposed uh, directly to the sun that get, I mean, they, the temperature on the roof would get up to 150 degrees. You transfer a, a significant amount of that heat below. So it's quite a cooling load. And it, it, it was something that was interesting. It worked, but it was a very, very hard sell. Uh, and as I, I think I said before, we were, it was a business that barely made any money and we were never able to get it above uh, $1.5 million, uh, a year. Uh, and, and that was tough. Interesting. So, but you did get that business to over a million dollars in revenue and that was sort of your first uh, business that you worked on yourself? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, you have the other little business. I mean, we made lamps. We did all sorts of dinky stuff. Janitorial company. We tried it. We tried a lot of different things. With the other companies up until that point, because I think a lot of people that, are, that hear an entrepreneur that was able to get a business to even a million dollars in revenue will think that's at least somewhat of a success. Uh, but the other businesses, the janitorial business, the land business, how far did you get those? How much money did oh, they no, make? Oh, no, there was nothing. It was nothing at all. And the thing is, so you say, oh, my gosh, well, you've got a business to a million or a million and a half dollars a year. That's somewhat of a success. But... It, you have to look at that. I mean, that is that business to run it at a million and a half dollars a year. I had that's not enough money to employ any number of people with what I was doing, and so I had to to do all of the sales, all of the marketing, and the marketing. I wrote a lot of articles for magazines, uh, and I had to do the installation. I had to do the the maintenance. And it, it basically was a one-man operation and uh, a lot, very, very physical uh, labor. And it was obvious, uh, just as it was with the reinsurance company, that I wasn't going to be able to take this for an extended period of time. So, so I paid a lot of attention to other opportunities. And I think that's important as well. When you think about uh, starting a business or being a business person, you shouldn't be thinking about, oh my gosh, well, I'm, I'm interested in, in Barbie dolls or I'm interested in, in uh, writing code or whatever. You know, that's what it's all about. Uh, this is, it's business. It can be about anything. And you have to look for the opportunities. I never thought anything, I never would have imagined that I would uh, build a company out of fans. Um, but uh, that's what happened. Now, I, I, I will say this, that when you're looking for something, I, I think there are markers uh, that you have to look for when you're starting a business, when you're looking for a product or you're looking for a service. 
you should be looking for something that is out of the ordinary. And what was out of the ordinary with the fans? Well, they weren't ordinary size fans. I mean, our fans uh, were 24 feet in diameter, some of them. And it was something that uh, the people at, at in the beginning didn't quite understand. I mean, why in God's name would you want a 24-foot diameter fan? Well, uh, the reason people, we were able to sell them, I, and I knew this, uh, was that in large industrial facilities, which I learned about when I was trying to put water on their roofs, are an incredibly uh, uncomfortable place to work in the summertime, at least in the States. They don't air condition these places. And um, by offering a huge fan that, that covered, gosh, between 10 and 20,000 square feet of area, uh, you could keep a lot of people comfortable and you could uh, they would be much, much more productive. And the people that were buying the fans recognized this right off, as you would if you ran a big industrial plant. And, and I've run big industrial plants, and I can tell you, hell yeah, people, that's what they want. The, the guys and the gals working out there want to be comfortable. And it was a very, very popular way uh, to, to keep people comfortable and keep them on the work. Uh, floor and retain them. Uh, and I will say that I knew that part before I went in uh, to it. But I don't think I would have ever gone into business selling ordinary size fans because, I mean, what what's the what's the hook? So I think you you're always looking for a hook. If you're making the same thing that everybody else is making, who the heck cares about that? That's a commodity. But as a business person, uh, as an entrepreneur, you want a monopoly. That's what you're looking for. You want to control the entire market. And the way you control the market is you first entry. And if you're the first gal or guy to get into the market, trust me, you're going to own it. And now there's lots of other little parts and pieces uh, you have to pay attention to, but but you've got to do that. And I think that I, I, I sold the business uh, in December of 2017. And I think over that that period of time from 99 to 2017, the end of 2017, that uh, we amassed 75% market share. You hold a 75% market share, you run the market. It is yours. Everything about it is yours. Um, and that's, that's what a real entrepreneur wants. I love that you mentioned that piece of it because I think it is incredibly important when you're trying to identify business opportunity, differentiation, and your unique value proposition is incredibly important. And um, uh, I think you said earlier that when you were first starting out, you thought it was maybe 50,000 customers was the whole market. And you learned, I guess, pretty quickly that the market was much bigger. But you had already identified part of the market that you understood very well, which is big industrial plants. Mm -hmm. And you had some experience there, you understood their pain, and you understood that a way that you could deliver value to them is through this differentiated product, which is incredible. And I'm actually starting to thread a story here because you know you 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 grew up very independent. You uh, had some success in high school with that program that kind of made you realize, okay, I can do stuff for myself. Uh, you had some jobs, and eventually you, I guess, took somewhat of a risk, but you probably didn't see it as a risk uh, to start a business. And you started it with that a roof cooling idea, which I guess you had when you were younger. So you you did what you knew. 
and that kind of evolved from there. So where did the idea for the actual big-ass fans come from? Where, what was the transition from the cooling system where it was a kind of a slog to run, you were doing everything, still got it to $1.5 million a year, to then this other business that you saw as a unique value proposition, unique opportunity uh, that you were then obviously able to grow to hundreds of times that size? Well, I, I did an awful lot of writing uh, articles. This was kind of pre-internet, and uh, I had a, a lot of uh, success working with uh, trade magazines. And, and I paid a lot of attention to trade magazines because they would call me and ask me to write. And, and uh, it, was a, it, it was a good way to explain what I was trying to do with whatever product. Um, and uh, it was also free. Man, you're doing somebody a favor and they'll take you up on it. So I read a lot of trade uh, magazines and I saw in one uh, there was a small machine shop that uh, had this big fan and, and really it was just a little ad that showed two guys in this huge fan. And I thought, holy cow, that's a great idea. And so the first thing I did was lose the ad uh, and I didn't call those people, which was which was stupid. So don't ever, ever, ever. Th that's another thing. Don't ever think you're going to get another opportunity. You should always leap on every single, every single opportunity. Um, fortunately, they must have had a, a twofer a deal at the magazine and they ran the ad again. And I called the guys up and I told them, well, we talked about it, and it turned out that they'd been doing this for a couple of years, and they hadn't sold. They'd sold seventeen fans, and uh, and they didn't know how to do it. So I said, if it works, then I'll be happy to distribute them for you. That's sort of tongue in cheek. You probably can't tell that over the radio, but I have to have exclusivity uh, because uh, though I didn't say this to them, but but I knew that I was going to build a brand. I also knew it was a pretty good idea. And uh, so that's how we started. We started with a distribution agreement exclusive to sell the fans. And as I said, they'd sold 17 of them. The first year, I thought we were going to go gangbusters, but business being business, the first year we sold 146 fans. And the second year we sold 420 something. And the third year it was uh, 700 and something. And But then it jumped to 1900. And I mean, then it took off from there. But I was fortunate when I uh, made the contract with this machine shop that I included in the contract that if we were successful, i.e. If, if we sold a certain number of fans, uh, that we had the uh, opportunity to buy the uh, uh, patents, the IP, the intellectual property. And we made a deal that I could buy it for $400,000. Um, now, in retrospect, that seems really tiny. And, and even at the time that I executed it, it wasn't a lot. I had to execute it because they were. it was a small company. And as we grew, as the demand grew, they had a very difficult time um, uh, keeping up. And to the extent that they uh, made several mistakes and started using a less expensive gearbox because they wanted to make some money, and it failed, and so we had 600 of these fans out in the field. We had to take them back. No. We had to take them back. We didn't have a choice. And this truly upset these guys. It, it, was, 
it, it, well, and you can imagine. I mean, it puts them out of business. I mean, I'm not. We we can't sell fans. They can't sell fans to us. So it was a it created a rift, and um, we we solved that problem. But I think both sides decided this wasn't going to work. And uh, so anyway, so we executed. And starting in 2002, we started manufacturing the fans. And as I say, because we were, we had a brand. And that's something else you have to keep in mind when you're doing this. I read a lot of these names for these companies that people start. And they just take, you know, take a take a word and take a letter out of it and add an R to the end of it. And it's like, what the, what, well, where is that going? I think that it's very important, think about it, when you're doing this, that the name of your company ought to explain to some degree what the hell you're doing. If it doesn't, your you, your potential customer is not going to be. Um, I mean, he's got to ask or she's got to ask a question. You can't depend on that. That's that's one step that you can eliminate by having a, a name that's that's uh, self-explanatory. So keep that in mind. You were able to start manufacturing because you had the uh, the IP agreement that you could buy it yes. after a certain amount of sales for uh, $400,000, and then you started manufacturing yourself. Correct. Got it. When you started manufacturing yourself, how did you, uh, you probably had orders coming in already, right? Was there a gap in time for where you can deliver on them? Well, that's very, that's an interesting question. It, it Actually, what we had done is we purchased about a thousand fans from these guys uh, because we figured that that it was going to last us that period of time, that it was going to take that long to do it. And it, it basically did. We had part of the IP, it included the, the uh, technology, the, the technical transfer uh, in terms of the, some of the parts and pieces uh, that was helpful uh, to us. But, um, but we were able to, to put ourselves in business uh, within six months easily. And, uh, and so that worked out fine. We didn't have a problem. And so they, these guys see you selling, you know, thousands of fans at this point, I imagine, right? When you mm-hmm. got this IP agreement, did you have to threaten them with a lawsuit for them to agree to execute the original agreement? Did they get mad about it? Or how, how did you actually go through the process of then capturing that IP from them? Well, we had a contract. What we had done, there's a little backstory here that we had uh, prior to executing we had talked to them about buying their company. And so we had said, and we offered, we said $5 million. We'll buy your company for $5 million. And uh, and they suggested that they were interested in that, though they didn't stay interested in it for long. And they promptly hired all my employees <laughs> and, and, and stole my database. And uh, I came in the office one morning and all of these... All of this is on my desk, and I didn't have any files. So we were in, when you talk about suing somebody, we sued them. Uh, we got an injunction right off the bat. And that was a court case that went on for several years. And we we prevailed, though. Um, court cases are very, very expensive, very expensive. Um, so they were not... They were willing to execute on that contract uh, because they were they'd sort of stuck their foot in their mouths. Uh, and what was interesting about that was we got an injunction right away, which basically means they couldn't use any of the information. 
and so it was all for naught. So they lost us as a distributor. They lost our customers. They were um, um, they were forced to to lawyer up. And so actually for them, it was a terrible, it, may, it was a terrible mistake. Um, and as we exited, as I exited the business, we were, the company was at $265 million a year. Their company, because they were doing the same thing, they were somewhere around 15 to 20 million. They were never, ever, ever able to catch up to that, which there's a lesson in that, I think, which is... Um, you shouldn't do dirty, it, you know, bad karma and all of that. So that's very interesting. So um, I can see here how, you know, instead of, and you told us this in the pre-interview, but you didn't necessarily see yourself as an entrepreneur. You you followed opportunities where you saw them. Uh, so you had a number of failed attempts at business with a janitorial business, with some other ones that essentially didn't really work. So you gave up on them. And then you had your first business, this cooling business that you started with your dad that um, wasn't as profitable, but was, I would say that was one, that was your first, I would say, entrepreneurial success that led to the blowout success. So now when you think about starting businesses, um, and especially if you think about a young person like you were when you were 28, starting that cooling business and maybe presumably didn't have much money to work with, what what's the first thing that you do and what is the first thing that you did when you wanted to start that business um really day one or month one of that venture how did you execute on it well we had uh, what we did it was interesting i i went home and uh i have a very uh a, a good wife uh and i went home and said from the reinsurance company i said i can't do this i i'm gonna do something else and oh, by the way, I need to sell a house. And uh, and uh, she was like, "Well, okay, if that's what you got to do, let's do it." And so we started with thirty thousand dollars because that's what we made on selling the house. Uh, so I think you you've got to have a little bit of capital, but fortunately or hopefully, uh, you've been putting a little aside. But the first thing we did was I started writing because I think that. One thing that that business, the roof cooling business, had in common with the with the big fan business was that it was out of the ordinary. And and in order to sell it uh, to other people, we had to explain it. And in order to explain roof cooling, we had to explain thermodynamics, and we had to explain physiology, and we had to explain you know, the, the the evaporation of water and the latent heat of vapors. I, we had to explain a lot of different things. And I spent uh, a lot of time, because we didn't have a lot of money. I, I mean, you can't advertise. If you think about advertising, advertising, think about an ad that you've seen that actually told, that educated you. I mean, they, they exist, but that's expensive. And when you're starting, you really don't have much money. And so I spent a lot of time writing and talking to editors. And so we created, at the time, again, you have to realize uh, this is pre-internet. So we used uh, uh, mail. We used a direct mail. We used, which really was not all that good. Did you already have a product that you developed that you were now trying to sell or? Yes, yes. So, so then 
So then did you go out and build it first and then start doing the writing or how did that work? Yeah, no, we had to. We had already developed the product and we we had been working on it. We worked on it uh, on the weekends and uh, especially during the summers, obviously. And, And so we had a product. It was simply you have to convince somebody else to 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 use your product and to pay for it. You don't necessarily make any money when you do that, but you have to do that that piece. And when we started, we we thought that it was something that we would do on homes, but that 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 wasn't true. That fell off pretty quickly, and that's when we realized that it was a lot easier and much more effective on big industrial facilities that weren't air conditioned. But again, it has to be explained, and a lot of it is education, and you have to educate your your customer base. And I think any time you start a business with a product that's not a commodity, which from my perspective is the only thing, the only way to go, is you're going to have to spend time educating your customer base. In some ways, it's easier today because you can use the internet. In some ways, it's not because you've got uh, I mean, everybody is trying to do exactly the same thing. So when you think about that, you need to think about what is it that, that other people are saying or how do they use the tools that are available because I want to use them in a different way because I have to stand out. And we were fortunate with the fan business that we started using the big-ass name. But uh, if if you don't have that, that's just one more hurdle you have to get over is, is a name. You have to attract attention. I tell people when I go to trade shows, you walk down the aisle and you're in a hurry. And, and all you do is you look left, right, left, right, left, right. And if it doesn't catch your eye, then you're not going to talk to those people. You have to catch people's eyes. That's a big, big, big deal. I saw something the other day I thought was very cute. Uh, Now, they're using advertising, and they're a bigger business, and I don't know that much about them, but I thought it was cute, is that it was for oat milk. Well, I don't know. I'd never heard of oat milk before about three days ago, to tell you the truth. It was interesting because one of their ads is, you know, a lot of people don't like oat milk, and I thought that was good. I, I mean, it's like, Oh, well, now I'm interested. I guess I'm going to have to try some oat milk, which is exactly what the hell they're trying to do. I thought, very clever. I don't know what it tastes like, but I guess I'm going to have to try it. I like it, so give it a try. It's it's pretty creepy. (laughs) Uh, But I like that advice because uh, you're right. Now, uh, maybe in the the past, you can go to trade shows. You can still go to conferences, trade shows, of course. You had the opportunity to write for trade magazines, and you got in front of customers that way. I'm assuming with a fan business, you had a direct sales force as well that was going out and actually selling people. But now you have to stand out from the noise. And for you, you know, what helped probably scale the fan business was the name as well. No, no, you're exactly right. And and I often say that a, a lot of people imagine, and you, I don't think it's right, that uh, we built a business based on that name. It, that was part of it. I think the name tells you something about the way we approach business because uh, it, we approach business the way we wanted to, the way we thought business ought to be done. I mean, we built products that will be around 50 years from now. We And we built them that way. I mean, we built it so that consciously, so that it was way beyond in terms of quality, in terms of longevity, way beyond what the customer expected. 
we we had, for example, when we hired people, and obviously we hired a lot of people. We had at one time we had a thousand people working for us. Um, that um, we had a culture, and it was a very very open culture. And I think that um, if I didn't talk about, or if I didn't mention that I did that thing in high school, or I did that thing on the cooling the roofs, I would say that that um, a lot of the way I approached business was the way I was taught to do things in kindergarten. Uh, and and that was that um, you couldn't steal the other boy's blocks and you had to watch out for everybody and you had, you had to empathize, you had to be nice, um, and you had to do your best. And, and that's what we did. And we had the entire company, that was the culture. The culture was if you made a mistake, you fessed up to it. Uh, you, we didn't build uh, silos. We all talked to each other. I had an office, but I, I never stayed in my office. It was a joke. I was a, I walked around continually talking to people. I was called a hyperlink because I would go to, to Bill and ask him what his problem was, and he would tell me whoever Bill was, whatever his job was. And uh, then I'd go solve his problem because, and, and you think, well, what what's the what's the CEO doing that sort of thing? What it does is, one, you get to know what the problems are in the company. Secondly, uh, everybody knows who you are. Uh, thirdly, you solve these problems, and typically, what you find is that it's a communication problem, which is a, which you can actually solve on a on a larger level. But it was a it was a constant mix it up, very very fluid, very very dynamic culture, that was focused on the customer, but by the same token, on the employees as well. Because I think it's silly when I hear companies say the customer is number one, but then they're underpaying their employees, or the, I mean you know they just treat the employees like junk. We paid more. We paid bonuses every year based on the profitability, and we were always profitable, and so we always paid bonuses. We paid bonuses to everybody. There were a lot of people in production that got much, much bigger bonuses than the guys in the C-suite. We also had what we call the SARS program, which is a stock appreciation rights, which is a variant of uh, stock options. And so when I uh, executed the sale of the company, uh, I wrote checks uh, for $50 million to the people that worked for me that that uh, uh, had done exceptional work but that had SARS. We had 15 uh, people that were made millionaires with that. It was over 150 people that were involved in that. It was it was people that were beyond the average. I mean, that took that really, really worked uh, in the business and and I think that's important, and it was important the, the way uh, I explained it to people was that when you're working for somebody else and getting a salary, you can save the majority of it. You cannot build wealth that way. That's not a way to build wealth. And I felt very, very strongly about the people that were working for me, with me, and that they had to be rewarded. And it was very, it was something that, that whole concept that I thought about uh, a lot, uh, and it made a big deal to me. And the fact we sold it for five hundred million because one of the reasons was because I felt like that was a big enough number 
for my people to get to make money on this mm. with the with the SARS because the the difference was between when they started the value of the company we had it valued every year um, and uh, the value at 500 million was enough that they could say yes this was good he he did right by me and that was a big deal and that was the 50 million bucks um, is a chunk of change and um, but I don't regret that not for one one half second i don't regret that that was a cool thing to do well that's awesome i i think so many takeaways here and i think uh, there are so many things you did you deliberately did in running this business that i think uh led to its success and i think first and foremost is it was listening to a lot of the things that you learned in kindergarten you learned from your parents which people shouldn't take for granted um but you did even from the beginning, a lot of what we try to impart in our listeners and entrepreneurs that we mentor, which is don't get hung up on trying to find the perfect idea or the perfect thing that you're so passionate about. Find something that some insight that you have, some problem that you can solve, or even something that you have an interest in and start solving problems there for people. And maybe the first try is not going to be successful. Maybe the second one won't be, but eventually you will get some insight and maybe it'll be a big-ass fan that you see in a catalog that you say, you know what? I already have a bunch of customers that I sold cooling systems to. I know they're going to love this. This is an easy thing for me to go start mm-hmm. selling. That insight you would have never gotten if you didn't spend the years selling that other product. So the fastest way to become an entrepreneur is to get started trying to provide value for somebody, not getting too hung up on what that is, and then basically grow from there, I would say. Yeah, and the one thing I will add is, and I don't know how you knew how to do this, but um, when we look at companies that have been able to succeed over time through the ups and downs, it's the leaders in the companies that actually care about their employees, that actually talk to them on the floor, figure out what the problems are, as you did, that actually sit down and talk to the customers to figure out what their problems are to make the product better. And then obviously, uh, to your point, you you proved that ultimately in the end by providing so much value uh, to your uh, employees and actually waiting. Uh, to sell the company uh, when you were comfortable in knowing that they actually made out and did well. And so many people are focused on themselves or holding on to a certain amount of equity or making sure that they, let's say, get wealthy and, and everybody else below them is just an individual contributor that they shouldn't care about. And those are typically the people that don't succeed in the end. No, I, I agree. I uh, When I was a kid, I was fascinated with astronomy. And one thing you you learn very quickly. Um, you can never look directly at it and see it. You can't see it when you're looking directly at it. It's not the way your eyes are. They're not far enough apart or close enough together. And so you look to the side. And I always thought that that was interesting with uh, the business and money. And I always told people, you can't, if that's your focus, you'll you'll miss it every single time. That is not important enough. And I want to tell you something. Money... And I know this, it's easy for me to say, I guess, but it's not that big a deal. It is not that big a deal. It's much, much more interesting and exciting to solve the problems, to work with the people, uh, to build those relationships. Um, The money will come. And if you take care of people, I think it for sure will come. I, I think what we did... Maybe I'm wrong, but we went overboard with the customers. We went overboard with the engineering. We went overboard with a lot of things, including our employees and even our suppliers, because our suppliers, your supplier is a business person too, and you have to pay them and you have to treat them right because 
their products going into your product and it really can't be any better than what they're supplying you. So you better take care of them. The success will come. It's not something you have to, you have to worry about. You just have to do it. Just do it. Do it right. Keep doing it. Treating everybody the way that you wouldn't want to be treated and paying everybody. We paid in Kentucky, we paid uh, 40% more than the average wage. And it's 30% more than the average wage in the States. We, we, and I know that looked really good. We sold the company to a private equity firm. I know they looked at that and went, holy cow, look at these dummies. <laughs> but again, you're looking out for each other. So, And how long did you work on the, the cooling business before you moved on to the big fan business? Oh, man. See, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <laughs> because I worked on that for, because I'm, I'm not that smart, uh, I worked on that for 12 years. Well, so, and there's a reason why I asked that, because one thing you just said is just do it and keep doing it. And had you given up six years in because it wasn't making enough money and it wasn't a real business, as you said, because it was dependent on you, maybe you would have been forced to find a job somewhere. And that's what a lot of people end up doing. They give up too soon and they sort of give up on their entrepreneurial dream or dream of being a business owner. And that's sort of the end of their career as a business owner. But for you, you kept going at it. And sure, 12 years is longer than you would have liked to work at it, but that's how long it took you to find that next bigger opportunity that, that led to the outcome that you were able to finally achieve. So I think that's a, that's a big message for me in this episode is just try things and keep doing them until you figure it out. No, I agree. And I agree with you that, that you have to start. I mean, that's the other thing. I think people, they, they talk about it, they dream about things, but they don't start things. And you really, at the end of the day, you have to start. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't plan. You should plan. You should plan and plan and plan again. But you've got to step off and do it because you'll never make it otherwise. It's not going to come to you. And, and the other thing I, I mentioned, which I think is true, is that you only get, you don't get as many opportunities in life as you think you will. And you, when you're young, you think, oh, you know, th this is going to happen. It'll happen again and again and again. And I remember what I perceived as my first opportunity, I was in graduate school and I didn't want to quit. I, I thought I have to stay in school. I mean, and not take advantage of that. I, I saw it later as that was a stupid thing to do. I should have quit and, and done that. Um, but I figured, well, you know, something else would come along. Yeah, something else came along. It's like seven years later, something else comes along. These things don't happen. I, don't, I, I hate to, I would not say um, that there's a rhythm so that, you know, it's, you would see it every seven years. I think when you're involved, I will say that when you're involved and you're and you're in the game, you see many, many more opportunities. Today, I see a lot more opportunities. Um, so, you, But you have to get into it. If you don't get into it, you're never going to see it. And then you're not, and I, I think another thing that's interesting, and I've talked to other people that felt this way, is that it, it, at some point, you're going to kick the bucket, and you're going to be on your deathbed. Well, let's hope you are. I mean, I mean, let's hope you at least have a little bit to think of, and the bus doesn't just whack you <laughs> off. Um, and you're going to have to look back on all of this, and I think that that's important. I think you have to imagine, did I do it right? Did I, did I do what I could have done? 
And maybe it's not as important when you're laying there on your deathbed. Maybe that's not what you're thinking about. But it, projecting to that point, I think you can think about that. And I, and I think that, you know, you've got to do it. I, I'm, I guess I'm a big proponent of getting off your ass. There you have it. If you're sitting there at home or you're on the drive to work and you're thinking about an idea, just get started. You got to do it. It might take a year. It might take 12 years, but you have to start now so that you don't have any regrets, ultimately. Uh, Carrie Smith, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, certainly an incredible story and an extraordinary entrepreneur. And now uh, the three of us have beards, and I feel like the three of us need to try oat milk together. So oh. <laughs> that's what we're going to do. <laughs> Thanks so much, Gary. Uh, thank you guys very much. All right. We don't actually have a <laughs> <laughs>